Hello and welcome to the Pastcast, I'm Calm Henderson. My guest this week is Dr. Adrian Maldonado, the co-author of an article in the latest issue of Current Archaeology magazine on Iona and the Age of the Vikings, and why a zombie narrative concerning the island badly needs to be finally put to rest. You can also read the article in full on the Past website now. There's a link to it in this episode's description. Current Archaeology's editor, Carly Hiltz, also very kindly joined me this week. Make sure to stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear more from her about what else is in the latest issue. But first to Iona, and here's our conversation with Adrian Maldonado. Well, Adrian, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Um, I want to start by talking about Iona, and I wanted to ask you why its monastery was so important in the early medieval period. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. So with Iona, you can't really be in a more important monastery in Scotland or Ireland in the early medieval period. This is one of the most prestigious uh, places of that kind. And uh, the bishops and abbots who were based on Iona were some of the most powerful at the time. So it's real center of uh, Christianity in that time that we we often refer to as the Dark Ages, but uh, Iona is really the example of how uh, how sort of enlightened uh, they could be. This was known as a place where Christian missionaries took off and converted the Picts and various peoples. But the missionary side of things is only a small part of what's going on on Iona. It's actually a center of learning, close to the equivalent of a of an early university, perhaps. It's a producer of really high quality art on a European uh, level. It's the keeper of historical chronicles. They write down the major events that happen every year in Scotland and Ireland in monasteries like Iona. Uh, And it's the promulgator of laws. They're passing laws to protect things like women and children and non-combatants like monks in times of war. So there's a lot more going on than just sort of uh, copying manuscripts, although that is a big big part of what's going on there. Well, uh, speaking of of the monastery, um, in your your article in Current Archaeology, you say there's a, a zombie narrative attached to the site. Uh, which, which is a you know quite an interesting phrase. Um, I was hoping we could talk a bit about well, what you mean by that, particularly in relation to Iona, and and why these narratives tend to persist so stubbornly. That's right. So if you know anything about Iona, you might know the high crosses, these large carved stones, uh, stone crosses uh, with uh, ringed heads. They seem to have been developed uh, at Iona, and you also might know that illuminated manuscripts like the Book of Kells may have been made on Iona. Uh, So it's showing off its wealth in this really uh, peculiar, particular way. If you know anything else about Iona, it's that it all comes to an end around the ninth century. There's no more great high crosses and no more illuminated manuscripts, and it just kind of falls into ruin after that. But Historians have been reporting for a long time that that is absolutely not the case. There are bishops and abbots who continue to be named as being present on Iona. There are visitors to the shrine. There are kings who continue to be buried there. So, you know, for a long time, people who work on the text have told us that Iona does not sort of fall into ruin at this time. But for some reason, there is this persistent narrative, however, that 
because of those Viking raids which begin to hit Iona in 795 and onward that they really did for the monastery. Yes, so Adrian, what does your research suggest actually happened to Iona during the Viking Age and then after the raids ended? So what we have on Iona is not a unique situation for this period. Uh, The first recorded Viking raid on a monastery in Britain or Ireland is on Lindisfarne, which is the center of the Northumbrian church, you know, Uh, and at this time, the Northumbrian kingdom is one of the most powerful in Anglo-Saxon England. Uh, So the Vikings go there first. Uh, And and so it kind of tells us that they are well-informed, that they know what they're doing. They're not just sort of an uncontacted people coming out of the blue and stumbling upon the first monastery uh, uh, that they see. They're going straight for the top. And they do the same thing with Iona. The first recorded raid on in Scotland is in 795, just two years later, and it's at Iona. So they're going straight for the top. But here's the difference between Lindisfarne and Iona. Lindisfarne seems to be raided first, but then not again for over a hundred years. On Iona, you get a raid in 795, then in 802, then 806, then 825. So you have repeated raids here. They keep coming back. But that tells us a couple of things. First, that Iona seems to be an easy target, a wealthy target. Again, they're showing off their wealth with these great high crosses and lots of pilgrims coming in. But also it tells us that there is something left to raid after that first raid. If they keep coming back, there is still something there. So that's what the that's how we should read these Viking raids. Uh, not as something that is intended to destroy the host, if you like, if you can think about it like a sort of uh, a viral parasite, you don't want to destroy the host. You want to keep that host alive in order for you to be able to keep coming back. And that is indeed what seems to happen at Iona. And it's not the only place where this happens. Another Columban house in Ireland, the Monastery of Kells, has repeated raids down through the 10th century. And um, we've we've talked a bit about some um, written evidence for what was going on. Um, you talk about excavations, about archaeological evidence in in your piece in CA. Um, talk about recent excavations and how previous work by Professor Charles Thomas has been recently reevaluated. Um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about what what digging has also revealed on Iona. Yeah. So, in a lot of ways. Scholars uh, who have worked on Iona have pushed back on this narrative that Iona sort of ends after those Viking raids. Uh, But this is the first time, really, that we've done it uh, as a team. So me and my co-authors, between us, we are are researchers in history, language, place names, art history, archaeology, and uh, material culture. Uh, artifacts in museums. And when you put all of that stuff together, we feel that the case is now really definitive, that Iona is not destroyed and ended after those first Viking raids. In particular, we've been able to, we've been very lucky to have access 
to the material excavated by the late Professor Charles Thomas. Now, Charles Thomas was very early on in his career when he and his team were first able to excavate on Iona in the 1950s and 1960s. And for various reasons, uh, he wasn't able to publish that. You know, a lot of archaeologists have these sites that kind of were the one that got away. Charles Thomas became the name in early Christian archaeology. He literally wrote the book on it. Um, and uh, and so he carried on uh, sort of doing his fieldwork and doing other projects and, and moving from uh, uh, from lectureship to professorship. Uh, and, and Iona kind of got away from him. So uh, uh, my co-author, Catherine Forsyth at the University of Glasgow, contacted him in 2012 and said, hey, you know, is there any chance we can have a look at this archive? And he uh, uh, very graciously agreed. So myself and Peter Yeoman, then of Historic Scotland, drove down to Cornwall. Uh, I got to meet the man, which was a great deal for me. <laughs> like yeah. uh, I was, uh, you know, I was fresh out of my PhD on early Christianity in Scotland. So this was like meeting one of your absolute heroes, and he was very lovely and uh, told us everything that we asked and uh, allowed us to take his archive away with his blessing. A few years later, we were finally able to get the funds and the means to uh, start combing through this stuff and bring it to publication as he intended. Uh, the main thing that came out of it was a series of organic materials that he had kept well preserved uh, and were still viable for radiocarbon dating. We lined up all of his samples into layers. We made sure we had a representative sample from across the excavations, and we got to uh, uh, get a series of radiocarbon dates. And it showed conclusively settlement and occupation uh, from the late 6th century, as we expected, the foundation of the monastery uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in the late 6th century by St. Columba. And then, uh, perhaps unexpectedly uh, to some, the radiocarbon dates suggested uh, unbroken settlement down to the 12th century as part of these excavations alone. Yes. So as a sort of follow-up question, you know, there's been some very evocative finds from Iona, particularly those dating sort of post-AD 800s. One of them is on the, the cover of current archaeology, in fact, a very nice cover, which is a bronze head uh, that points to continuing Irish links. Can you uh, tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. The other amazing thing that came out of the Charles Thomas uh, Project archives was a series of small finds obtained through their trenching in the 50s and 60s. A lot of this stuff, the, ma the vast majority of this stuff was unpublished uh, as yet. And so uh, uh, we were able to look through this stuff and a lot of it is kind of uh, 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 not very photogenic. There's the stuff of everyday life, like handmade, locally handmade ceramic of a kind that's made in the Hebrides. But importantly, it's made uh, from the 7th to the 12th centuries. So we have this uh, great series of ceramic that we can do a lot more with in due course. But then there's also metal finds, and these were really striking. The most iconic one, perhaps, is a small bronze head. It's a, a sort of human head, uh, but it's only about two and a half centimeters, uh, less than an inch, basically, in height. And uh, uh, it, 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 a close look at that showed us definitively that this is this has come from a shrine or a reliquary of a kind that's being made in Ireland uh, no earlier than the late 11th and most likely into the 12th century. It shows us a couple of things. These and other finds 
show us that there is still settlement on the island um, and that there is still really high quality metalwork coming through, including reliquaries, which means that there are probably relics still being enshrined as late as the 11th and 12th centuries. Again, it just tells us of not only a, a sort of a monastery that continues to survive, but is continuing to thrive and receive pilgrims. Uh, that made us turn back to other museum collections, other items that have been excavated down the years and have been handed to museums across the country. And in looking back at this stuff, we were able to identify still more objects that uh, that date to this sort of post-800, post-Viking raid period. And uh, most fascinatingly, among these were a series of Pins. These are dress items. Ringed pins we know are being made in Viking towns like Dublin, and we find them all across the Hebrides, so it's not surprising to find one or two on Iona. We've now got a handful of them, but we also have a handful of stick pins without ringed heads, and these are the kinds that are being made in the Irish towns of the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, and we're now up to uh, uh, about five of those or six uh, from Iona itself. When you put it all together, it looks like there is not just a monastery, but a settlement, perhaps a beach market that is trading with the Viking Age and late Norse, Hebrides, and the Irish Sea zone. Perhaps ironically, a few hundred years after those Viking raids, there are Norse-speaking elites carving crosses marked with runes and wanting to be buried on Iona, and the monastery and settlement are both in contact with Ireland, with Scotland, and also with Norse-speaking parts of both uh, Ireland and Scotland. Uh, speaking of, sort of Scandinavian activities, um, you said you've also been looking at place names as part of your research. Uh, what, what do they tell us about Scandinavian activity on Iona? That's right. This is the subject of an ongoing Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project uh, about the place names of Iona. The goal is to uh, once and for all uh, gather up all of the evidence for place names uh, 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 documented from the early medieval period to today and say what we can about what they mean, what language they were coined in, and as far as we can tell, how old they are. And even though this project has only just begun, they're already finding out things that are perhaps unexpected. Among them are Norse, Old Norse language place names on Iona. And for the most part, this relates to coastal uh, coastal areas, you know, harbors and headlands. These are the kinds of, you know, geographic place names that often get Norse names uh, uh, through navigators and mariners passing through, perhaps. But we also have very prominent landmarks. So there is an Iron Age hill fort, which is unoccupied uh, after the Iron Age, but it continues to be a very prominent landmark to, uh, to anyone passing through. Uh, and it has the name Dunverg, which is uh, uh, comes from the Old Norse for or, uh, fort. It's a, a, a hybrid name. Dun is that uh, Gaelic word uh, for hill or hill fort. And, uh, and then the second element is that Norse word for fort. So even prominent landmarks like these are getting Norse names. What we are seeing here as across the Hebrides is actually a mixture of Norse and Gallic names. So at, uh, so at some point in the, the Viking Age, the monastery seems to 
have gained a, a Scandinavian trading outpost. Um, I mean, this relates to what you said about the Vikings being the subject of their own kind of zombie narrative. I mean, they were much more than just kind of marauding thugs, weren't they? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we can only we can only kill one zombie at a time, but it is worth it is worth sort of raising that question. All of this material around this monastery and frankly other monasteries as well in Scotland shows that there is Norse entanglement. There is Viking Age involvement in these monasteries. They are not all blinking out of existence left and right. And we have to see the Viking Age as something that, yes, involved raids, but the Vikings didn't invent raids. Even church burnings happened before the Vikings uh, in Ireland and certainly, almost certainly, in Scotland. So, you know, the Vikings didn't invent violence not even violence against the monastery. And after that age of raids, which is, you know, uh, it's undeniable that the early ninth century is an age of frequent raids. Uh, after that, we know that uh, some Norse speakers convert to Christianity and they begin to be wanting to be buried in monasteries like Iona. We have runic cross slabs across the Hebrides that uh, attest to this. There are Norse speakers who, uh, after, you know, 100 years after those first raids, themselves have converted to Christianity, and it is places like Iona that are probably ministering to these people, such that when it comes time for them to have a wealthy burial uh, under the eyes of God, it is to places like Iona that they come. I think it really tells us that uh, what we think about monasteries and the Viking Age are both under need of revision. Absolutely, and as much as obviously some raids did, uh, the raids did influence the Iona story. It, from what I've read in your piece, it, it sounds very much like Iona's fate was bound up in local politics too. I think you quite vividly call it a, a political football. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so there are uh, there are kings who continue to be buried on Iona, and what we know about them is that they are kings of Alaba the precursor of the Kingdom of Scotland. There are Hiberno-Norse kings, the kings of Dublin. Uh, there, are, uh, there, there are visits by kings of Norway. And so Iona remains a very important political place as well. And these raids in the ninth century are not the last Viking raids. They're not the last raids on Iona either. There is another raid in 986. It's uh, a particularly violent one. It's remembered as the Christmas Day massacre because of when it takes place. Uh, but it, it, historical research around that by my co-author Thomas Owen Clancy shows definitively that it is part of several raids that happen on Columba's monasteries in Ireland as well at this time. And it's all in the context of a struggle for succession to the Irish throne. Rivals are now, uh, at this point, uh, attacking each other's monasteries because the war has gotten so bitter. Uh, and that's something that happens in Ireland as in Scotland. Um, if, there, if Iona was not a politically important place to have affiliation with, you wouldn't have kings wanting to be buried there. And the other striking thing is that from the 10th century, the kings of Alba, 
uh, in Eastern Scotland are still very much patronizing uh, the cult of St. Columba. The, one of their major monasteries is Dunkeld, which was founded from Iona and dedicated to St. Columba. And indeed, the kings of Alba are uh, begin to be named Mile Colum, uh, that is the uh, servant or the follower, devotee of St. Columba uh, from the 10th all the way through to the uh, 12th century. The final question, Adrian, um, what's next for your research? There's lots of different questions that this opens up, but uh, the most immediate thing is that we're not done digging. Uh, Historic Environment Scotland, the the successors of Historic Scotland, uh, graciously allowed a team from University of Glasgow to reopen two of Charles Thomas's trenches. His photographs were a little bit unclear in some cases, and the records didn't survive very well. And there was a couple of things that we needed to go back and see for ourselves. Uh, We were able to re-execute the vallum, uh, that is the monastic enclosure, and get really good radiocarbon dates and organic survival out of that. More importantly, perhaps, we were able to excavate a small window trench that they had uh, they had opened up very quickly south of where the nave of the cathedral is today. Uh, they found a stone wall, but it was too big to investigate in the very small trench that they had opened up. And so they covered it up and they intended to go back for it, but for various reasons weren't able to. We reopened that trench and Historic Environment Scotland allowed us to extend that trench out in 2018. And uh, we found that it looks like an early enclosure wall around the core of the earliest monastery, perhaps. The radiocarbon dates on that show that it was taken down by the 11th century because the monastery had expanded and grown beyond that early enclosure wall. Okay, but we haven't finished uh, excavating that trench. The pandemic kind of did for that. Uh, but we are still hoping to go back for another season, sort out once and for all what that wall is and what the date of it uh, and the context around it is. Uh, I've also mentioned the AHRC funded place names project. That's also going to reveal more evidence of uh, evocative place names that might help us target future fieldwork beyond the monastery. Um, well, Carly, we've just spoken to Adrian about his um, co-authored article on Iona and the Viking Age, which is also on the cover of the latest issue of Current Archaeology. It is. Would you like to tell me what else readers can look forward to in this issue? Of course. Uh, we've got another medieval piece uh, looking at peasant experiences, medieval peasants and what their lives were like and how they interacted with their landscapes. Uh, it focuses on southern Oxfordshire. And it's quite fun because obviously archaeology can tell us about where settlements were and what the houses were like. But it's harder to unpick how people actually experience those places. And this project's combining not only material evidence, but place names and documents and maps and, and a quite a cool experiment involving church bells, which I think readers will enjoy. So it, it's sort of digging into people's sense of identity, which is quite fun. Uh, we also have a, a very topical piece, given that the, um, the UN Climate Conference has been going on in Glasgow. Um, it's a really great community project called Citizen Coastal and Intertidal Zone Archaeological Network, or, or Citizen for short. And they've been doing a lot of work around well, the coast of, coast of England, and we've covered them quite a lot in the past. At the moment, they've been working in Essex on Mersey Island, looking at evidence of previous coastal erosion and coastal change and how that was affected by people in the past, and sort of applying that to how can we use understanding of the past to better meet the current climate crisis, which is... I think quite important work. Uh, We are also marking the 175th anniversary 
of the Cambrian Archaeological Association. And we're doing that by looking at how archaeological illustration has evolved over time, uh, particularly looking at uh, illustrations from Wales. Um, it really is amazing how technology and techniques have moved on. It's, it's a really interesting piece. And the final feature, um, I've been on another site visit. I'm still getting out and about, which is really good fun. <laughs> <laughs> and this That's time, good to I'm, hear. oh, I'm I'm loving it. I've missed it so much. I'm so happy to be back on the road again. And I've been to Blickmead in Amesbury, which is really close to Stonehenge, barely two miles from Stonehenge. And it's only it's a small excavation. It's running a while, but only little trenches. But it has such disproportionately important finds. It's a wonderful site. Uh, we've covered them quite a lot in the CA, so I was very glad to go back. Um, you think in the Stonehenge landscape, there aren't that many Mesolithic sites or find spots known. We don't know that much comparatively to what was going on there before Stonehenge was built. And so when you get a site like Blickmead, which has produced tens of thousands of bits of worked flint and evidence of feasting and repeated gatherings, it's completely flipped the balance of, of finds in that area for that period. So very exciting to go back. Um, once again, they've got loads of cool prehistoric finds, but they also had quite an interesting medieval discovery to show me, which I'm not going to spoil here, but I think readers will find that pleasantly different and colourful. And yeah, go and read about it. It's very cool. Okay, thanks very much, Carly. Thank you. Not at all. That was Carly Heltz, editor of Current Archaeology, speaking to me there. And before that, Dr. Adrian Maldonado. Don't forget that you can read the article we were discussing in the latest issue of Current Archaeology magazine which is out in the UK on the 4th of November, as well as online at the PAST website. That's all for this week. Thank you to my guests, Carly and Adrian, and to you for listening. We hope you'll join us again soon.